It's a dream inside 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 a dream. I think we should just loop that for about two hours and release that. Shout out to Matt Bronger, a really good comedian. I like that dude. Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. I'm their mother. Don't you think I can tell the difference? I'm TJ. <laughs> and this is Serious Film People, a podcast about movies nominated for Best Picture, specifically movies nominated for Best Picture in 2010 at the 2011 Oscar ceremony. And today is the fourth episode in our series on the 2010 Oscar nominees, which means alphabetically we're talking about Inception. <sighs> That has a wicked. What are you doing, TJ? By the way, did you know? What are you doing? I'm trying to do the thing. You didn't make a noise. Yeah, I didn't hear you make a noise at least. Oh, okay. I'll hear it in the recording then. Um, From what I could tell, you just were covering your face with your hand. I was hot boxing a fart. (laughs) I thought thought you were about to drop a Bane voice. Yeah, I was just about to say. He was trying to do Tom Hardy, but it's the wrong movie. Wrong movie for. Yeah. So this is the first collaboration between uh, Nolan and Hardy. First of three? Because uh, he, right. uh, yeah. he gets Bane up in that bitch, and then he's uh, a pilot in Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. this movie yeah. is filled with, uh, I mean, Nolan's got so many repeat performers, and there's a bunch of them here, both on screen and off screen. Wait, what do you mean off screen? I mean, some of the crew. You got. Um, uh, he's got his usual band of like Wally yeah, Fister he's and got his, Smith in here. His cadre. Yeah, yeah. But this is the first uh, time he works with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. First of two. First of two with Marion Cotillard. First of three with Tom Hardy. Uh, never works DiCaprio again. But it's uh, also like the. Um, I think it's like the fourth movie where Killian Murphy's like sixth build. <laughs> Because he's like he's like sixth build in Batman Begins, probably like tenth build in The Dark Knight. Uh, he's like sixth build in this. He's like sixth build in Dunkirk. Dunkirk, and then finally we get him uh, top billing as a uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah, does he pop he's, up in Dark Knight Rises? He does. Also? Yeah, he very briefly pops yes. up in The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, very yeah. small role. Yeah. So. As I said last week, we've started every episode of this series by kind of like rewinding back the clock to 2010 to uh, ask what your experience at the age of 20 was with these movies. Uh, And like you guys seem to have better memories of what theater you saw these movies in, if you saw them in theaters, who you were with. I don't really have that kind of uh, recall for most of these, but I do for this one. I know exactly what theater I saw this in, exactly who I was with, and exactly what day it was on. Or not like the day of the calendar, but like what was going on that day, um, which is fun. I saw this in 2010, in July, the day of my goddaughter slash cousin's baptism. And so me and my older brother, Jason, uh, who are both godfathers to our cousin, we we're co-godfathers, we were both in suits at a church in Clayton for the baptism, and then went straight from there to the Galaxy Theater in Chesterfield Valley to see Inception in suits. We saw Inception <laughs> in suits because we figured that was appropriate, given that like that's the uh, uniform of Leo DiCaprio slash Dom Cobb in this movie. That was before so it was my brother viral thing, right? This this you were the inspiration before, for Boss Baby. It wasn't Boss Baby. Wasn't it Minions? Was it Boss oh, Baby or right. Minions? It was that, Rise of Gru. That, uh, 
It was Rise, Rise of, of Gru. Gru. The people yeah. went Can suits for some I too reason. often think of Boss Baby anytime I see a film. That's he's in a suit. It's <laughs> getting real Boss Baby vibes from uh, everything. Um, I think that's the only time I've ever been to a movie theater in a suit. I think. Yeah, I, can't I don't know that I ever have. Every okay. time Terrence Malick releases a new film, I do put on at least a jacket <laughs> you put and tie. On coattails, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And I remember walking out of Inception at the parking lot for the Galaxy Theater in the Valley, and uh, my brother turned to me and saying, I think that's the best movie I've ever seen. Wow, that is a... Which is the only time anyone's ever said that to me within, like, 10 minutes of the credits rolling. They turned to me and deciding... In that moment, that's the best movie I've ever seen. Which I have some feelings about that. Uh, I think I think that's great that my brother felt that way, and I think he I don't know if he still feels that way, but I'm sure this is still one of his favorite movies for sure. Um, I was I was 20 at the time and a bit of an asshole and like thinking I knew a lot of stuff, so I was like I don't think I said out loud come on, that's not the best movie you've ever seen, but I probably privately thought that, or maybe did say it out loud. I don't really know. But I think that's like um, maybe a good microcosm for how this movie, the reputation of how this movie exists in the world and also how I feel about it and how I feel about the movie's reputation, etc. So, TJ, when did you see this? Well, say because I, because I like your brother, I'm going to choose not to comment on that anecdote. Um, <laughs> okay. I believe I saw it opening weekend uh, with my brother, not in suits. And I was really looking forward to this film because I thought at the time, you know, I was 20, so I was young and dumb. Uh, I thought Christopher Nolan was the shit. Uh, I really liked Batman Begins and I really liked The Dark Knight. So I had gone back and seen Memento. Memento blew my mind. I watched it forwards. I watched it backwards. I watched it with my mom forwards and backwards. Um, I had, I think at this point, seen his entire filmography, and then we'll we'll unpack this more later, but man, did this film let me down. Um, and this was the start, the beginning of the end for me, until Nolan rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the atom bomb over this past summer and made his greatest film, which is Oppenheimer. Not until, not until Nolan and Become Death were you on the Nolan train. You got off the Nolan train at Inception, but then got back on when he and Become Death. Yes, for sure. Wow, so you're tell you're saying that you're according to TJ, fifteen years separate Nolan's uh, Nolan's better films. Yes. Yeah. Uh I you don't like Dunkirk? Yeah. You don't like uh Interstellar? No. Yeah, <laughs> I knew yeah, I could tell that was coming. I can't remember if I ever shared this on mic with you guys, but I saw Interstellar and like kind of similar to how you were with this movie. I was so looking forward to it. And then I was like a little bit let down by it. And then I didn't watch it for like close to a decade. And then I watched it on my flight home from London earlier this year when I had like, you know, 13 hours to kill. And um, about two hours in of Interstellar, I was like, is this among the best movies I've ever seen? Because it, it feels like it might be among the best movies I've ever seen. And I don't know why I didn't like it when I first saw it nine years ago. And then the last like half hour happened and I was like, okay, it's not among the best movies I've ever seen, but it's like three quarters of one of the best movies I've ever seen. I think how you far know, removed so. from your surgery were you at this point? <laughs> it's like four months removed from my surgery. Thank you very much. Ken inception go in Josh's defense. Oxygen had been escaping from the cabin at that point for a couple of hours, probably on his I don't flight, know why you guys so. have to be mean. Um, I, <laughs> 
I don't have I don't a distinct. I'll be honest, I don't have as distinct a memory of seeing this uh, in theaters. In fact, all I know for a fact is I did not see it the summer it came out. I saw it when it was re-released on screens, a few screens during the awards season. Um, because I saw this on a big screen in Kirksville, Missouri. I was already, I was at school. Truman State. Despite the fact, exactly, despite the fact the movie came out the summer before, I did not rush out to see it. Um, the trailer hadn't really won me over. It looked interesting, but I, for whatever reason, I didn't rush out to see it. Um, I'm, I'll be honest, I don't agree with your brother, Josh, but I'm, I'm always jealous of somebody who has that experience because, as we've discussed privately and some we've alluded to on the podcast, um, the greatest films I've ever seen, I didn't see for the first time on the big screen in a movie theater. So yeah. I'm a little jealous when whenever somebody walks out of a movie theater and feels that way about the movie they just watched. I've said this to you guys before. Like we, you know, sometimes give star rankings on movies we watch on Letterboxd and – it is so, so, so rare for me to give a five-star rating on first viewing. Yeah. I usually don't have the balls to do that. I usually will give no more than four and a half on first viewing, and then I'll bump it up to five if I watch it a second time and still feel the same way about it. But to be able to like walk out of something and immediately feel that strongly about it and that sure about it, again, like I, I admire that the same way you admire that too. Like, yeah. I'm not like poo-pooing that in any way. Yeah, I, I felt – That's just not me. I felt – strong passion for films after walking out of the theater but at no point have i ever had that kind of confidence to be able to walk out and be like that is one of the greatest films i have ever seen um i even though i think probably i had some inkling of that we talked about there will be blood um we're going to talk about a film later this year that i i felt really really strongly about when we saw the king speech Exactly. Yeah, I didn't want to give it away, but <laughs> I can't wait to get get revisit that movie. Um, no, this movie. I remember walking out, and um, it was part of me. Part part of it was a head scratcher, just because there's so much dumped in this movie. There's so much exposition. There's so much explanation, and I'll be honest. I think I had. I think I watched this late in the evening and was probably a little too tired after like working on homework or something i think i saw it on a weeknight i didn't go out and see it on a weekend and for whatever reason i walked out not really feeling that all that strongly about it either way it was like well visually it was stunning the story didn't really capture me and every time i've watched it since i've been a little more critical of the story um that said i think the visuals hold up they still um they're still impressive it's still a, a really attractive movie to watch um the story, however, leaves me wanting. Um, why didn't you see this in theaters? I mean, you just said it, the trailer didn't do much for you, but um, what I remember in 2010 is that this was Nolan's follow-up to The Dark Knight, and so I felt like everyone and their mother was clamoring to see what this would be. And um, it, he, he, you know, in, he famously made movies in between each entry in his Batman trilogy. He made The Prestige between the first and second Batman and made this between the second and third Batman. And... Um, I think all three of us left Batman Begin, so we were pretty excited for the prestige when that came out. But then, like, everyone caught up to us when The Dark Knight came out, and suddenly everyone was on the on the Nolan train. Yeah, it happened so, quickly. It, kind of like the train in this movie. It just kind of it hit suddenly, and with The Dark Knight, and then the next movie with Inception. Like, he was, he was you know, a guy that people were, some people liked up until The Dark Knight. But my point is, after The Dark Knight, I'm surprised you weren't going out to see this opening weekend, well, or at least in, in its initial theatrical run. To put to put in, just to, to highlight or color in the kind of person I was at the time, 
this is summer of 2010. I hadn't seen um, Avatar yet, which had come out the previous December. I didn't go out and see that in theaters. Admittedly, as anybody listening will remember, I have some opinions about James Cameron that probably influenced my choice not to go see that in theaters. But I wasn't rushing out just because everybody and their mother and grandparents potentially were going to see a movie. So Inception, it just it wasn't it it wasn't enough for whatever reason um, to drive me to the theaters that summer. Um, I had to go revisit it later, knowing that it was getting awards attention and okay, let's see what this is about, kind of thing. What is this about, TJ? Fuck if I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, espionage it is a thriller that takes place in the architecture of the mind that's how it it was described um on okay so it's a heist movie it's it's a heist movie yeah it's the it's a typical like here's an opening set piece that kind of explains what these guys do and then there's a job offer and then there's a assemble the team montage and then there's a planning the heist uh series of montages basically and like training and then uh, they get into the heist, and things go wrong, and they have to change the plan a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. And then they do where they don't exceed in pulling off their heist. So it's a heist movie, right? Mm-hmm. That's fair. Um, I believe Nolan spent about 10 years developing the script, and, it, and he wanted to make something about a movie about people who enter other people's dreams and potentially steal from other people's dreams. And he originally conceived it as a horror movie, but then reworked it over that 10 years into a heist movie and now is a i think it's a pretty straightforward heist movie actually yeah um if you if you pull out all of the extra crap he throws into the movie yes like plotting wise i think you're correct plotting wise it's a pretty straightforward heist movie story wise it's not well i think the details of like the world that the heist takes place in um makes it unique i guess among heist movies um Kristen Thomas is an American film theorist and author, and she wrote a piece around the time the movie was released about how um, a traditional heist movie has a heavy dose of exposition at the beginning as the teams assemble and the leader explains the plan. But with Inception, um, the exhibition becomes like continuous, like as they as the movie goes on. So like what she argues is like basically three quarters of the movie is just explaining stuff. And then basically once the van is in free fall in the last act, that's when like things start to pay off. And so I guess what she was arguing is that it was smart to make this a heist movie because heist movies um, implicitly have a lot of exposition anyway, as people are, as you know, the plan is explained. And because there's so much exposition in in this movie from just like the, uh, the world that they're in, it was good to make it a heist movie. Any thoughts on that? That's a, I think that's a pretty generous reading um i hear that that there is always there is always they you know here's the plan because then the plan's going to go wrong sort of business um but think about how much more fun it is in something like oceans 11 yes and think about how even having a larger cast in oceans 11 the peripheral characters have distinct characteristics that make it feel like a team and make it feel like they are ribbing each other and they're having fun and it's not just so serious and pretentious. Um, and it's precisely because those movies don't get so high on their supply like this one does of 
look how smart I am setting up this labyrinth. Oh, you plebs, I'm going to need to spend 100 pages of screenplay explaining all of these rules to you because I'm just so smart. And trust me, when you get it, you'll be smart too. And it's so cool. Yeah, that that speaks to my biggest problem with this movie. And I, I keep hinting at the fact that it's the story. Really, it's the fact that it feels like much of the film is the characters talking at us rather than conversing with one another in a way that informs us. Um, I don't feel like there's a there's a whole lot of of character develop like a whole lot of development between the relationships within the character in, in the movie. Like the characters don't seem to interact so much with one another as much as they're having to dump. There are like two. There there are two characters. They're like Dom Cobb's <laughs> wife died, and he wants to see his kids. And then Killian Murphy's daddy didn't love him, and that's it. Right. The rest of the characters, we don't really need... There's nothing about them. And their relationships with one another, even when there's an opportunity for tension in the film. Um, and I wanted, I do want to talk about Limbo and the fact that it seems to be a last-minute stakes razor, razor that just gets <sighs> yeah. tossed into the movie about an hour yeah. and ten minutes no, in. No, I want to... Yeah, for sure. Um, th- that provides an opportunity for tension between the characters and then very quickly they're all reacting angrily and then decide suddenly you know what now's not the time forget it and so the tension is all gone no one's angry no one's upset it doesn't have any stakes for the rest of the action no one's it doesn't result in anything bad happening between the characters and it doesn't negatively affect the relationship as they're going about the heist and so that one opportunity is it the rest of the time, they're just there as pieces. Um, everyone's doing their thing, and to some extent, Ariadne, the the Elliot Page character, is, I guess, I don't know if we're supposed to be kind of guided through the movie through Ariadne to some extent once we actually yeah, get into the I heist. Mean, yeah, she's the audience point of view character. Yeah, so for sure. why then don't we have anything anything interesting or anything more about, about her? Like, Ariadne's just there. She's, well, not, okay. she's nothing. So, she's a, a student who's promising, who takes three turns to draw a puzzle that Leonardo DiCaprio can't solve. And then that's it. That's all we've got there. Uh, I got to drop this now because I prepped this. Ariadne has 176 lines in the movie. Oh, my God. Speaks 176 okay. <laughs> times. Do you want to guess how many of those are questions? So you you said you were going to do this. You, I did this. You said you were going to do this. Yeah, and I did this. as I was watching it, I was like, oh, my God, I hope TJ actually, like, literally quantifies this because I'm very curious to see. Um, my guess, watching it, just ballpark, at least half of her lines had to have been questions. Okay, so you said 170-something? 176 so bet, lines. 176 lines. So I bet – it might be more than half. I, I, she might ask 90 questions, I potentially. Just, yeah, I was just about to say it's got to be somewhere around 100. Okay, so Josh said 90 with a laugh. Like, it surely can't be that many, can it? 96. 96 questions. 56. 55% of, of Ariadne's <laughs> lines are questions. 17 of those are one-word questions. Like, <laughs> and I, threw, I, I included why not in there. I don't include in here lines that, like, are leading as if into questions where it's like, that's Maul. And it's like, that's Dom's wife? You know, like, I, I didn't count that because there was no question mark. But I did count gems like, wait, I'm lost. Whose subconscious are we going into? Or, what was that? Or, how do you know? Or, what's that? 
this is this is this is just like un, undefensible. This is undefensible. So I was gonna ask if you actually did this because I was hoping you would when we were talking about exposition. There's the proofs, Josh. There's, there's your uh, there's your notebook with all the time marks. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. And like um, maybe on first watch or even on second watch, like it doesn't bump me as much because I'm like learning things alongside her and like learning about the world. But once I kind of like know how this works, um, that character works less and less. Not that she ever even worked in the first place, but um, it's tough. It's really tough. And and I think the, the defense is, well, this is so complicated. You need that. And otherwise the audience is completely lost. At which point I would say, does this need to be that complicated? If you're, if you're putting together such an intricate puzzle that you have to have a character that does this, maybe you've disappeared too far up your own asshole. My second contention there is, have you seen RoboCop? Uh, yes. Parts of it. Okay. Paul Verhoeven does this way better, where RoboCop and then Total Recall, which is the better version of Inception, are both take place in these worlds that are not like ours, and they have a whole different set of rules. And the way Verhoeven gets the exposition in is by having the, the characters within it need to know for the purpose of what they're doing next, not whole entire scenes where you're just going to be like, I'm going to walk around this city and just like, watch this mirror and then another mirror. Woo. Right. It's, there'll be like a news broadcast or RoboCop wakes up and he's like, all his body's all different. And they're like, Hey, here's what we did to your body. Right. And you would understand, Oh, they're asking. I, I get why that character would ask. This is so transparently just, Okay, before we get to the action, let's let's lay out the ground rules here. I'd be I would just do a PowerPoint or something. Like that's basically yeah. what you're doing. And to kind of refer to what Ken said earlier is like the characters are so clearly saying these things for our benefit and not for each other's benefit. And one of my least favorite lines you'll ever hear in a movie is someone saying to another character as you know (laughs) because that is exposition directly for the audience despite the fact that the character doesn't need to say it because the other character already knows that information you know and like no one actually says as you know blank in inception but so much of it is basically exactly that Hmm. and to to the point that like within the logic of this world these characters should know that but they have to not know it so that we, the audience, can learn it. Yeah. And, like, for example, the opening set piece, where which has Lucas Haas as, like, the architect. Right. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt tells Lucas Haas to wake up DiCaprio, and he starts slapping his face because he apparently doesn't know that you have to, like, use a kick, a gravity change to wake him up, even though he's, like, a part of this heist team. Did they not explain the rules this guy before they went to this really dangerous dream-within-a-dream scenario to extract information from this Sato guy? Did they really just not tell him how to wake people up? Like, is this your first one? Right. You know? Yes. It's also, yeah. it, it, it belies the fact that this, there's apparently a, an entire field of study around this to the point that yes. this is a this is a known thing. They literally are traveling around the Michael world. Michael Caine taught Leo DiCaprio how to do this, yeah. right? Not only taught him how to, he's theoretically probably providing some uh, education about this in his coursework. Hence, Ariadne is not totally oblivious to what they're doing, and they literally when they're they're supposed to be in Mombasa when they're they right. they visit with the guy who's who um, he's got a room full of people who are all basically sedated 
downstairs in the basement. You're like, oh, so no, this is like a thing that people just do all over the, the world, apparently. It's not a secret. No, yeah. and yet... Well, well, such to the point that, that <laughs> Killian Murphy has yes. like secure subconscious security, which I think is a really cool idea, but it does just go to the point that like... We live in a world in which this happens, and a lot of people know that this happens. But yet, yes. all of these people have to have everything explained to them yeah, in such detail. Yes. Because you've created a story that is so wildly complex that you have to spend so much time explaining to your audience what the fuck is going on. Um, one thing I forgot until this most recent watch is... Elliot Page's character exists solely to receive exposition to ask questions. That's number one. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is not fair much better. No. Nope. Because I would be curious to know, of the, all the lines he speaks, how many of them are direct exposition explaining something to somebody else? Yeah. Not tell asking me, the question, but answering the question. Tell me one thing about him as a character. Uh, he has an infor- inferiority complex compared to Eames, Tom Hardy's character. Okay. Tell me two That's... things about him as a character. <laughs> he also um, wears great vests. That's all I got. <laughs> He combs his hair. He slicks his hair back. Yeah, my my point exactly. He's yeah. I I don't begrudge Jessica Gordon-Levitt for being in this movie though because he has, I like him. Well, I like him as an actor. Well, it's not so much uh, this character is fucking with, nothing. I'm fine with with Gordon Levitt as a, as a, as an actor as a person. I don't begrudge him for being in this movie because primarily because he's got probably the best job of anybody in the movie because he gets to have all the fun in the best set. The best scene or sequence in the whole film, he gets to have all the fun, all the action, all the stunt work. I mean, yeah, he apparently did it for like six weeks, so it probably gets tiring. But he You're talking gets about the hallway to, scene. Yes, exactly. He gets to get paid yes. to have the most fun of anybody in the movie. And that's it. Good for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but otherwise he's just looking really nice in the vests. And to your point, almost I, – I would willing – if you go back and watch – I'm willing to bet the vast majority of his explaining things are aimed at Ariadne because that's almost always what he's doing. Yeah, he's trying to translate like most almost. of the second act. Yeah, yeah. is just him he's, talking to her about like totems and about Maul and yes. about yeah this and that and paradoxes. Let me go on the record he's, and say I don't like him. He was terrible in the Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio. Um, <laughs> And he is he has such he's a Jimmy like, Cricket. He's the voice I, of Jimmy Cricket. I can't stand him. I can't stand DiCaprio. I can't stand Tom Hardy. And he and DiCaprio have this thing where it's like their costumes are really good, but they both look like the sons on Take Your Dad to Work Day. Like <laughs> Joseph Gordon Levitt has such this like, I am trying to act like an adult. He even like kind of talks like this a little bit, like he kind of doing the like, right. Keanu thing, yeah. you know. He is yeah. only a few years removed from specificity. And he's just so like, God, 500 Days of Summer cannot get washed out of my brain. That is, <laughs> it's just so cute. It's just so cute. I really like that movie. You know say, that I, like, I really, really like that movie I like a lot. that yeah. movie. Um, yeah. Annie Hall called it once it's innovation back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's such a cold take and also a wrong take. 500 Days of Summer is so different from Annie Hall. Oh, but it's because it's about a breakup and it's not told in a linear fashion. That's why it's Annie Hall. Oh, and it's, and it's so edgy. Like on one side, here's what you imagine. Here's what really happened. The Smiths. I love the Smiths. <laughs> God. Tell us what's really We're not talking about that. Take. Go, I, ahead and take, go, go back to 2010 with this take. Anyway, <laughs> you don't like Tom Hardy in this? I actually think Tom Hardy is great in this. I I don't I think great's a, a, a strong word for a character. Is he great in anything? He's not doing a whole lot. Yes. 
I think he's one of most talented one of our most talented actors. I do. Okay. I just don't think he's doing a whole lot here. I mean, I'm I'm fine with Tom Hardy. It's just there's a I guess there's a certain charm to his character in this movie. But again, he, there's Slick, not much there. Confident, cool, but those things. There, it's weird. He brings a good vibe. He's. Uh, I, I did note where he's in, in interviews, multiple interviews. He apparently alluded to the fact that when creating his character, he was thinking of Graham Greene characters, like Graham Greene novels. So, like spy type characters from, th- or, or uh, think like Ministry of Fear, Third Man, Quiet American. Um, so stories like that, and yet I'm not sure how that character fits into this world. It's almost like he went out and decided to create himself a character for a different movie because yeah. he doesn't so to, really. So to prepare for this role, he pretended he was in better movies. Is that yes. what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of. Yeah. I wonder if he, he watched all those movies uh, in addition to reading the books. But my point being, there's a charm to his character. Yes. But I just don't think he's in the same movie as the other actors. Like he's, He's just perfunctory. He's there for a purpose. Again, he's a cog in the wheel. We need the character to be doing something because we just need somebody there to be doing whatever. Well, he's I think doing. in a in a in a heist movie, all the characters serve a different function, so they can't all be the same. So the fact that he's like different than the other characters is kind of part of the point. Yeah, but it feels. I don't like think he's, he's in a different movie by any means. No, it feels like he's in a, a Guy Pierce movie or something. Guy Ritchie. A Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> wrong wrong guy. Um, <laughs> It does though. He feels like he could be. He should be op- acting opposite a, a twenty twenty Hugh Grant. Like I think a heist movie in twenty ten should feel like a Guy Ritchie movie. So the fact that he seems like he's in a, guy, a Guy Ritchie movie works just fine. Yeah, but this. that's just it though. This is not a Guy Ritchie. This is nothing like <laughs> a Guy Ritchie movie. So he's fitting into the, the wrong heist movie. Have you heard the like theory that the characters in this movie are allegories for a film crew? Yes, I, I've heard every theory that tries to justify why this isn't stupid bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll come back to whether or not it's stupid bullshit, so just put a pin in that. But Ken, have you heard that? Uh, I have. Yeah, I, I've never. Where, yeah, really well, okay. So into it Cobb, Lou DiCaprio is the dreams. director. <laughs> just hold on. Cobb, Lou DiCaprio is the director. Arthur, just Gordon Levitt is the producer. Eames, Tom Hardy is the actor. Ariadne, the architect, is the writer, and Sado is the financier and the reason i like that is you know it kind of is because they are like creating a narrative like in this movie they're creating a narrative to sell something to fisher fisher's the audience member killing murphy's the audience and their ultimate goal here is to create an emotional response an emotional reaction in their audience member and, and get him to feel something so that he can you know so they can accept this idea into him so like i don't know I like that. It doesn't really add anything to it, but I, you know, it's I also strange that coming from hey, that's neat from Nolan, who like didn't try an emotion until Interstellar. Yeah, yeah, his movies are kind of cold. You don't think there's any emotion in The Dark Knight when Rachel dies? <laughs> Rachel? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, you don't? Okay. No, I disagree. Okay. The only emotion in The Dark Knight is this is badass. Uh, <laughs> it, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> Stop not, pointing that gun at my family. Yeah, let's not go down the Dark Knight hole, uh, just because that's a different. I, I'm. I think. How do you parse? How do you parse apart your feelings for post Dark Knight Nolan movies from something like The Dark Knight? I mean, 
that movie seems to be fully aware of what it's doing. At least no one seems to be completely in tune with the source material. With and that, by that I don't mean necessarily just the comic books, but the screenplay he's working off of, and um, he's just seems to be working on all levels, understanding what he's making. And Inception, he's trying for something completely different, and he almost seems to get kind of distracted and all turned around at times in his trying to to reach whatever it is this movie is trying to do i i just don't know i think he gets lost kind of like in a maze designed by ariadne he he's designed something that he doesn't know how to get himself out of so we've said tj said that this is mostly just stupid bullshit and he also (laughs) said earlier that this was so serious and pretentious and i guess i'll say that um number one i like this movie well enough like we, we've kind of been mean to it but I, I do like it well enough but i guess that um my feelings in the movie change depending on who i'm talking to <laughs> and because you guys are kind of like down on it i uh kind of feel the need to like move into the defensive position because you guys are on the offensive <laughs> that said let me just get out of the way the problems i have with it and then i can move back into like defending it mode but before i do that the problems and Something I didn't really internalize until this most recent watch, and maybe it's only because I've seen it like a dozen times at this point, building off TJ calling it serious and, and pretentious, this movie's so silly. Like, everything this movie's built on is, like, silly and ridiculous. And it is so self-serious, and I also agree it's kind of pretentious, and there's not a wink. The, no. the movie plays this all as it's the most serious thing in the world, and yet it's, like... It's so ridiculous and silly. And I, I don't mean – and I'm not trying to – I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I think, Let I, me just, like, I, think I get what you're saying because the I, I to the extent that it doesn't – you're not suggesting it needs to be a comedy or screwball by any means or that the actors no, shouldn't take it their – yada yadas it yada yadas some very ridiculous stuff yeah. and kind of expects us to just take some very ridiculous things at face value and not think about them too hard. And the exposition is kind of trying to like – bury you in like mechanics of how this works but if you pull on a thread for a second it all just unravels and you kind of realize if you if you take a step back and like take a step back out of yourself and look at the movie from a bird's eye view it's so it's silly that's the only thing i can say about it like the kicks and projections and sedatives that are so strong they let you go three layers deep but don't worry i I designed the sedative so it doesn't inhibit inner ear functions. You can still hear, feel a kick. It's just all just so silly. Um, An elevator that takes you down through the subconscious and Maul is in different stages, different memories, depending on what floor of the elevator we're on. It's silly. Ken mentioned earlier, Limbo. Limbo's silly. It's a ridiculous thing. It's just... But, like, in Ken already alluded to this, like, the fact that Limbo's just kind of thrown out an hour and ten minutes in as, like, kind of a, a twist of sorts. Yeah. And a, a stake-raising twist of sorts. And, like, again, take a step outside yourself. Kind of try to remove yourself from how serious the movie is taking itself. And, like, just watch the scene where DiCaprio re- reveals Limbo. It's like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's kind of freaking out and says, wait, what happens if we die down here? And Leo DiCaprio very seriously kind of turns away and says... We go to limbo. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck are we doing here? What is this? And like, we mentioned Ocean's Eleven earlier, or, or TJ mentioned Ocean's Eleven earlier as like a, a good heist movie. And 
Ocean's Eleven also hides things from the audience, but in a way that's like very, very satisfying once they reveal things. And they don't hide that much. They just hide like one or two things. And then like in the third act, you realize what they hid and how they hit it and how it's paying off. But with this, they're not so much hiding things from the audience as just like explaining things to you later, I guess. But like there, there's no way to be ahead of this movie because it's all just kind of like it, it kind of feels like it's being made up as it goes along. Yes. Like, oh, halfway through, limbo exists. Yeah. Like that's that's a new thing you need to know that about. Is, that, but like that is precisely what limbo feels like in this movie. Like it's just made up on the spot. Because like, you they realize what happens if we die. Oh well we've already explained that. If you die you just wake up. Oh no shit, we need higher stakes. But not here, that. because yeah. bump bump limbo. It's it's silly. Again, I keep saying the word silly, I just can't think of anything else to say. But like, yes, I'm sure he did multiple, many, many drafts of this to like tighten it up and like head off questions like this. But at the same time, it also does feel a lot like he's just kind of making it up as he goes along and like trying to anticipate audience questions and like bury those best he can. But like at, it, when they're in like the snow fortress later on and Cobb is just like icing people with the sniper and Ariadne is like, are you like deleting parts of the subconscious by killing these? And he's like, no, they're just projections of a self-conscious of the subconscious. And like, Sure. Oh, yeah. Great. Like, I, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Cool. And again, it just kind of fit. It, it very much feels like a, it feels superfluous and like he's making it up as he goes along and it's kind of silly and like kind of like compromises any stakes. You know, I think this movie is a big stakes problem potentially. I'm totally with you on the, the, um, the fact that this, that's okay. I think the silliness, the level of, of ridiculousness that this movie encompasses and includes is fine. If you include, as you put it, a wink of some kind every once in a while, or com- even some comic relief, there's it not really any so here. self-serious. It's so the, dry. The one comic relief line in the movie is when Arthur, or Eames says to Arthur, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling, than pull that up. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, God. Oh, my. <laughs> is that a fake laugh, TJ? That's yeah, it laugh. is. Jesus I Christ. I hate fake laughs. Don't do that. Um let me just let me just read audience, some lines. The audience can't tell the let, difference, TJ. So let me audience. read some exact direct quotes that are said in this movie. And you tell me if this movie is a serious movie or a silly fucking cartoon. Maul is bursting through your subconscious. <laughs> That's, That's said hot. with a dead fucking straight face <laughs> by Elliot Page. Um we wound up on the shores of our own subconscious. <laughs> Mm, God, I hate <laughs> when that happens. As they're literally seen on a shore as waves lap up against them. I hate when I'm on uh, the shores of my own subconscious. <laughs> this one, I, I, I kind of feel different ways about this one. She had herself declared sane by three different psychologists. <laughs> could I go to a psychologist right now and say, hey, could you declare me sane, please? I'd like to be declared sane. Is that a thing that psychologists do? And, is that a service that I'm a psychologist, my first question is, um, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something's coming up in my life really important, and I'm going to need this officially documented. Like, first step, you might be fucked up asking someone to declare you sane. Is there, like, a, a just, like, a, a standard form that psychologists have where it's, like, two columns, sane and insane, exactly. and there's, like, checking boxes down the yes, row? Yes, yep, yep. And then they just tally them all up. And if they have enough sane check marked, you're good. Declared sane, yep. circled on the paper, sane person. Yes, de- the, the declaration in a blank line, sane yes. or insane. That's it. So in her in Maul's medical record, 
three different times they had psychologists say she's sane also by the time they have two psychologists doing it and they add a third one is someone who's like keeping her medical chart together being like why is there a third sane declaration <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing guys i'm all for a second opinion but jeez. <laughs> Right. Um, but but I, the reason I say that I'm two minds about it is because I think that's just like a ridiculous uh, concept and something, again, if you pull in the thread for like a second, you're like, wait a second, that doesn't, that's kind of dumb. But they just kind of blow through it fast enough that you don't notice, I guess. But um, I do I do kind of like how diabolical her little scheme is there where she trashes the hotel room, seeks psychological consultation to like show that she's not suicidal, allegedly, and then like tells a therapist that she's afraid for her life from her husband and then like kind of traps him into like a murder plot. So like good job framing him. I like that. I mean, that work. That this sounds- is totally something you do with people you love, right? <laughs> yes. Even <laughs> there's, there's a couple, there's a couple aspects to that whole scene <laughs> <laughs> that just don't really work. First of all, um, you're right. That, that little, that portion of the movie, I feel like that would have made for a really interesting film about, uh, and a, a wife pulling that on her husband potentially, but it's yeah. rushed through. She yeah. gone girls him. That is she way gone girls him. Honestly, well, or even not gone girling, but the actual thing of somebody being so lost in the delusion of yeah, I can't. I don't know if I'm in reality or not. Is a way more interesting movie than a dream inside a dream inside a dream inside a Joseph Gordon Levitt talking. Like no, no, no. That that whole thing of like, what do you do with someone you love? Who is who? So cannot believe that what's what they're in is reality or not. I think would make a fascinating movie, and it's just window dressing to give Leo something to be like, no, Ball, no, <laughs> Philippa James, no. <laughs> he doesn't. I don't like. There's something about that scene in particular. Once he gets out on the ledge, that I'm not really wild about. And it, actually, I know it's two things. One, yes, I don't really love Leonardo DiCaprio's. He seems to be overacting when she jumps. In everything he's in. Well, in particularly in this scene, in. it's not reactive and it should be. Like, there's no instinct there. He seems to be, it seems to be act, all acting. Um, and it's it's obvious. The other thing is the dream mall that we keep seeing throughout the film is supposed to be a fabrication of Cobb's mind. And she is both menacing and desperate every time we see her. That is the only scene in which we see her talking, and she's supposed that's supposed to be the re- real Mal, and she is dastardly and just as menacing, yeah. if not more yeah. so, than we get in his subconscious. And yet he seems to constantly push back on the fact that the woman who's trying to kill them or throw off their plot when they're in the dream universe or whatever, oh well, she's not. That's not. That's just. That's just on my projection of her, and that's not actually who she was. That's not actually my wife. And it's like, well, it sounds like your wife was fucking nuts and evil like she was willing to do some really really terrible things just to prove a point (laughs) (laughs) just to prove a point i like how you think she's like if you don't do the dishes i'm gonna jump this is not a normal marital spat ken (laughs) i'm Um. true but but Uh, that's the only scene we get no we get no other reference for what she was like in the real world other than like that's that's an ex Intensive amount of preparation in order to convince your husband, your loved one, to jump out a fucking window with you. Like, let's both die. I think this is generally a lazy criticism of any kind of movie. 
even when it's launched against Nolan, but he doesn't really help himself much here. You got two female characters in this movie. One of them asks 96 questions, <laughs> and then the other one is a psycho bitch. Like, <laughs> Well, you're not the first person to make this crit- critique of Christopher Nolan's writing. It's, it's a lazy women. critique. It's a really lazy critique. But. Well, it is interesting how much dead wives come up in his movies, and this is like the apex dead wife trope movie where she's nothing but just a dead wife and... A really vague antagonist. Even watching this 10, 12 times, I don't really know the rules of how Maul You've seen this 10, this. 12 times? I've seen this a lot. Ooh. Yes. Yes. I've right. watched this movie a lot. Okay. Um, and I still don't really know how Maul works. And I'm, I'm unclear on the rules here. Apparently despite, Don didn't either. Well, <laughs> this movie has more exposition than probably any movie I've ever seen, and I still don't get like all the rules, which is like mm. kind of a problem. Um, I'm curious... Um, because Josh, you've seen it more. I'm hoping you maybe maybe you've uh, I not I think I know you've done more reading about this movie than I certainly have. Is the reason that they chose to play or use Edith Piaf's "Non Je Ne Regrette Rien" throughout the film? Could you say that again? <laughs> you know what? If you don't speak French, just when it's did the Dickie French Eklund join the podcast? Um, I'm curious if they choose that song. Simply because they got Marion Cotillard in the film, and she's literally a couple years before this won an Oscar for playing UPF. Because otherwise, that's a really strange coincidence. And I'm, I, I get, I guess they choose the song, which is about regret, sure, and he's mm. obviously got a lot of it in the film. But I'm curious if they didn't settle on that simply because, hey, wink, wink, that's the only wink maybe we get in the whole film. Why not regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Why didn't they do uh, It's Not Unusual by Tom Jones? <laughs> oh my God, that would have been amazing. What's new, Pussycat? <laughs> That's... Um, oh. To answer your question, Ken, I don't really know, but that is like something that's definitely on like IMDb trivia boards of like the movie connections section of the IMDb page where it's like, hey, she played Edith Piaf four years earlier and now the songs of the movie and ken uh, it's important that that song is two minutes and 28 seconds and the movie is two hours and 28 minutes i didn't know that i, did, I didn't either I didn't. that's cool um, well also I, like another like piece of trivia that i think is true but this is like something that i read on the you know internet message boards at some point that the uh the is that's it's the slowed yeah. down song version of the edith pf song like slowed down like 10x yeah I hear you, but also don't all songs, if you slow them down enough, sound like that. <laughs> um, well, the bro, the the it has that has a Wikipedia page, and for the, I did not realize that until we just watched this. The bois um, has some Wikipedia page because I know it's just a bunch of it's basically just a bunch of horns playing the same note at the same time. Um, my understanding, those but hum- that became that became so fucking influential. Yes. After this movie came out, yeah. the score is amazing. Every goddamn trailer for a decade had that in it. The score is amazing. Yes, I've been shitting on this movie for fifty minutes, but the score is amazing. So let, let me just say this then. I, I want to say this earlier, but I didn't have a chance to. There's no way to quantify this, so I realize this is kind of like a meaningless discussion conversation. But um, is this? Could you argue that this is the this is among the most culturally significant movies we've covered alongside Jaws and Titanic? In terms of like how big of a splash it made and how many people are aware of it and like how many references there are to it and parodies of it and things like that. 
Yes. Uh, I think so too. And here is, if you're still listening and haven't sought my house to like firebomb it at this point, um, part of why I hate this movie so much, because if I really back off, um, it's, it's better than most like Guy Ritchie movies. It's better than most of the other things that like genre wise it plays in the ballpark of. I got the same problem Ken's got with Titanic, which is the elevation of it as uh, not a year goes by where I don't teach kids who tell me this is the best movie ever made. Um, and that just just fl- flames, breathing, breathless, heaving flames <laughs> on the side of my face. Um, and and it is it is culturally significant. And there's a bunch of people that seriously are like mind blown. This is the greatest thing ever. And when when you go to that level, I feel the need to tear it down. Um, but if if you put it in kind of the genre ballpark that maybe it should be in, I would be more complimentary to it. That said, I still think um, all but like one Mission Impossible movie is better than this. Um, most James Bond movies are better uh, than this. Yeah. Um, and that that's kind of the arena that it's playing in. Certainly the... Well, Certainly the last act. There's hold on. Let me just say before we get away from the like pop pop culture splash this made, uh, as kind of alluded, the Bois has its own Wikipedia page and it appeared in every trailer for the next te- ten years. Um Blankception has its own Wiktionary entry where like wow. anything that's nested with like things within things within things will you call it blankception. Mm. A turducken is birdception, basically, or whatever. Like, huh. you know, a tur- a chicken inside a duck inside a turkey. Yeah. Oh, I know what a turducken is. I just He's a, a, a thing a inside a thing. Any kind of like Russian nested doll thing is just yeah, now. Just we had a, we had a phrase for it. It was Russian nesting doll. <laughs> well, now it's quicker. We're using fewer syllables. Now it's just blankception. So okay, so then know. under that theory, we need to get rid of the blank of it all, which fucking Ariadne says in this. How do you explain the physics of it all? I about went into fucking convulsions when this <laughs> happened. It was Ariadne, who I can't stand, in Inception, which I can't stand, saying the blank of it all. I you talk about it. Fuckery inside fuckery inside fuckery. Fuckeryception for TJ. Yeah. I remember saying that. Oh, I've got it. I videoed it and sent it to Dave. <laughs> What's the answer? What was the answer to it? What's the physical? I don't know. All? I just kind of like, I think I had a minor cardiac arrest <laughs> and I just missed it. Um, last thing. This is the only movie of the 10 nominated for Best Picture in 2010 that has a in popular culture section on the Wikipedia page. So again, that tells you that it was like parodied a lot of places referenced in songs. South Park did an episode about it. Simpsons did an episode about it. Um, Lots of references to this movie uh, Mm -hmm. for the next decade, really. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a, and this didn't make nearly as, it made a lot of money, but didn't make nearly as much money as like Titanic and Jaws, which are the other two movies that I would say are huge cultural phenomena in the movies we've covered. So like, there's something else about it, I guess. What did this make? Like, it was $800 million? Is that... Uh, I can tell you. I know that it was made for a budget of 160 which okay. is great. The fact that an original story got $160 million is great. And, like, that's one complimentary thing I definitely say about it. It's like, I wish more movies were given this, like, level of resources. He benefited hugely, though. He got basically a blank check, more or less, from Warner Brothers after The Dark Knight. Yes. That's true. Um... Domestically, this made two ninety three. Worldwide, eight twenty eight. So you're right; it made north of eight hundred million. But um, relatively speaking, compared to Jaws or Titanic, that's like not 
that's like half of what those movies made adjusted for inflation etc yeah so, it's well, not and, it's not as much but it's still it's still made a profit which and is you mentioned josh that you know original ip that's the other thing i have to give this movie credit for is like as much as i have a ton of problems with it i am happy that this exists over like let's reboot spider-man again or something like that you know yeah and i guess like my big criticism of the movie, as I said earlier, is that it's really silly if you think about it for like more than 10 seconds. But the thing that I'll say complimentary about it is that if you don't think about it for more than 10 seconds, it's pretty cool. And like the the bird's eye view, staying out of the nitty gritty, staying out of the details, and just kind of looking at it from a broad strokes perspective. I kind of like the idea of a heist movie where people go into people's dreams and steal ideas and then like nest dreams within dreams and like... You know, that kind of thing. And I think that's why it's popular and why people like it so much is because, like, the non-specific, undetailed elevator pitch is cool and easy to get on board with. But, again, once you, like, get into it, it kind of falls apart quickly. But, you know, but then don't maybe spend, you don't get into it. Don't spend so much time then getting into it. You know, this is the, two hours and 28 minutes with 96 questions asked by one problem. character. And it's like, if this were... Again, I'm using Total Recall. There's a lot of stuff in Total Recall that is not explained. You don't get a lot of questions to Arnold, you know, where he has to be like, no, nah, I'm going to Mars. Uh, it just, you just take certain things for granted and it works so much better. This is an inherent problem with a film propped up by such a complex story. Like you've got to figure out, a, you've got to figure out a way to provide the inf- necessary information to your audience without letting things get kind of convoluted, distracted, and slowed down to some extent, because there's there are some really fantastic set pieces in this movie, mm-hmm. and you're losing you're potentially losing the audience audience's interest and you're not building up the necessary tension for those set pieces to pay off as well as they could. Because by the time we get there, I'm not feeling as excited about this movie at that point, despite the fact that the second half includes some monumentally impressive scenes. Yeah. So I agree and I disagree to varying degrees. Now, let me address a few things you said. Number one, that it it bogs itself down with exposition. And it does. But there are, like, moments where it organically gets exposition out. And I think that's, like, really effective. So I want to shout out, like, the opening set piece that I already alluded to earlier. Where it's, like, Leo DiCaprio and Jeff Gordon-Levitt in uh, Ken Watanabe's dream. And they're, like, ostensibly pitching themselves as, like, security from extractors, but they're actually in a dream trying to extract information from him, right? And during that sequence, Maul shows up and, like, captures Joseph Gordon-Levitt and holds a gun to his head. And, like, in that moment, in that tense moment, which is during a set piece, during a moment of tension, we learn that if you die in a dream, you just wake up. Right. But also pain is real. So like that's like that's important exposition to get out of the way. And they got it away in an organic way in the middle of like an exciting 10 set piece. So like good work. Yep. And I wish that the other exposition in the movie didn't just like come in the form of a second act that's basically just questions and answers, questions and answers, questions and answers. Another thing you said, Ken, is that uh, you don't you don't feel like the exposition like you're, you're less invested once the exposition starts to pay off. I agree and I disagree, I guess, like I, despite what I said about how like silly i find this if you think about it for more than five seconds or ten seconds once the van like hits the bear and is in free fall i think that sequence is pretty cool and that's the part where like all the exposition for the most part is out of the way and now it's just like payoff 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 and like 
again, it's a really effective ticking clock. We all love ticking clocks, but like the van in Freefall gives Arthur only a few minutes to collect the floating bodies and figure out a way to get them to feel some sort of gravity. I think that's interesting. And like while that's going on, they need to they have a ticking clock in the snow portion where they have to like get into that locked room before the projections shoot them all. And then like Fisher needs to be defibrillated and just like three or four layers of ticking clocks, which I think I think that stuff like works pretty good. You know, I guess. I'll admit this might be partially on me. As my wife has said, I have a terrible habit of not being able to turn it off when i'm watching movies yeah even if i whoa turn what off ken (laughs) meaning the part of me that's constantly critiquing and thinking about what it is that's going on the problem is during those set pieces later on i'm still trying to figure out and trying to make sure i understand everything that's been told to me and trying to apply that to what i'm watching so that i understand what's going on or what's about to happen and i'm i'm so distracted by that so either I'm not invested enough because I'm too focused on trying to to understand what it is I'm watching and kind of convince myself, okay, uh, what's about, you know, basically anticipate some of the the tension coming. Um, Or because of all the exposition and because of the convoluted and ridiculous nature of the story, you've got viewers who just totally lose interest. Like, they're, they don't care anymore. And they're fun, cool set pieces, but that doesn't necessarily do enough to win them back over. Because they're just like, well, this is just all stupid. So, okay. Oh, cool. They're, they're going to have to get out of it. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Who cares? So it, it hurts in both ways. Either you're trying to stay invested, I think, and you're distracted, or you lose interest. And for everyone else, you literally have to turn off your mind and then just like sit there and be like, oh, look at the pretty visuals and the pretty stunts. And <laughs> well, that's cool. And, and I got to say, like, the it, it's very famous, and I think rightfully so. The hallway sequence where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's just like running. That that, yeah, I was going to bring that up. I, yeah. I saw that again. I think I've seen this movie three times. And I saw that, and I, I realized I've seen this image outside of context so much. I, I think that again hate this movie but like that is an iconic lasting cinematic image yeah i think that is if you took if you took like shots of the decade not necessarily the most gorgeous not necessarily the most profound whatever but just like iconic shots of the decade that's got to be in there sure and it and so when the movie turns its brain off and stops trying to impress you so much with its, I just read Friedrich Nietzsche and took a philosophy class. It hums. <laughs> I mean, think about, think about like, here's another, I mean, I'm going to do that thing again where it's like, here's another movie that does it better. How little do we need in Mad Max Fury Road? There, there's we need a, very little. There's a movie that, again, takes place in a completely different world where all this stuff has happened that we don't really know. We don't know how. We don't know why they want water. We don't know really what the war boys and the chrome and all we that. We know why like. they want water because you need well, water to cause, live. Because you need, cause yeah. you're thirsty. But we don't know like where the water went. And then you get like certain shots. Like, Do you remember the people like walking through the marshes on these weird right. stilts? Nobody explains that. It's just there, part of the world. And, and we don't need it. And that movie hums. My understanding you know? is that... Mad Max exists in limbo for Eames, right? I believe that's what that's what we're led to believe. No, something like that. Yeah, Eames yeah. is in limbo till his brain turns to scrambled eggs, as it says in Inception. And in the turning of scrambled eggs, his mind hallucinates Mad Max Fury Road. Brilliant. More people should should be in limbo. Apparently, mm-hmm. 
I agree. The ha- when you say you've seen the hallway sequence before, do you mean you've seen it in like montages and stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just like it's an iconic shot, um, and it's done really. Uh, well. I agree. And, it, it, and there's multiple hallway sequences. Uh, there's the one where he's like thrown forward when the van hits the barrier, and also like I mean the, the scrambling one. Yeah. The, well, there's there's the spinning fight and the zero gravity fight in the hallway. The spinning one's the best one. Yeah. And that's when like the van is going end over end. And I believe they built a hallway, IRL, and just like mm-hmm. had it on a giant gimbal that could like how they filmed the rotating hallway scene. They built a hallway that rotated. Yeah, so a one hundred. It's truly awe inspiring. Yeah, it's it really a one hundred. Yeah. It's foot, really fucking cool. One hundred, extremely cool. One hundred foot long hallway. That's huge. Like it's not the first time that somebody's built a set that rotates three hundred sixty degrees, but this is on a massive scale. It's a mm-hmm. large set. That they're rotating, and it's not the only one. It's not the only set piece in the film where they did something like this. I do like the scene where he's at the bar in um, Robert Fisher's dream or subconscious, and he's confronting Robert Fisher and basically saying, "I'm with your security, and you know you're being you're being uh, basically attempt- there's an attempted heist going on in your mind." Mm-hmm. The scene taking place in the bar, the hotel bar that they're in. I love it. The rattling glassware, uh, the the focus on the, the the drink in the glass, the fact that the set completely shifts, like forty five degrees, like the set was on was angled was able to be angled, and it makes for a very very impressive scene. And I'm there. I'm with it. I, I like that scene a lot. It's just story wise. Okay, he's breaking another rule that we were told in the first hour you're not supposed to do, which is confront the. <laughs> confront the subject and make them aware of the fact that they're in a dream and so it's like screw it why did we spend the first hour being told all of these rules that we're now violating which which can't possibly do anything but in you know obstruct the heist that you're trying to pull off so again there's kind of some of this contradiction because within scenes that are really cool to watch i'm i'm being taken out of it because my mind is going back to the story and like wait a minute why are we doing this again didn't you just explain not to do this? And they, they they say that in the film multiple times. Usually it's it's Arthur. It's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character being like, and eh, he's doing it again. Oh, yeah, he always goes against whatever he says. Whatever he says. Wait, I, I got to disagree a bit, Ken. I, I actually like that in movies when they do the, like, it, classic example is Men in Black. Whatever happens, don't push the red button. And then you know later they're going to push the red button. Yeah, but this, I, I like that. This film's not channeling that. They spend the first hour telling you everything about this universe, and then once they get on the aircraft, they violate several of the things consistently during the second half of the film that we're told in the first hour you're not supposed to do, or that's bad. I, I, I know. I think it brings. I think it brings tension. I think it does. I don't. I don't mind it if it's that kind of film. But as we discussed earlier, this film takes itself so seriously. So I don't think it's the type of film where. You're, it's the type of film that has tension though that's just it i'm not sure that the problem is the tension what tension though there's there there it's forced tension the kicks kenny the kicks the forced (laughs) that's all forced tension it comes back to limbo there's no stakes until suddenly at the last second they're like oh wait there are stakes Mm, i disagree look at me defending inception right now really in here before i start defending it let me me say (laughs) before limbo uh, whether or not they uh, Cobb getting home whether or not they succeed in the heist and therefore Cobb gets to go home and see his kids that, that, that requires so you care enough about Cobb which we know TJ doesn't so what are the stakes <laughs> what stakes are there 
it's well I mean, there's the, the, just this tension can exist tension can exist without stakes hard story stakes because tension can exist as merely we are watching these people we're we want them to succeed because they're our protagonists and they set up these rules and you need to play by these rules and what happens if you go outside of them and we don't really know and i just thought that that i mean not a nail biter this is an alien but i was like oh okay i'm interested to see where this goes let me step in and talk about stuff that i don't like again um i don't like the (laughs) third the third layer down the snow fortress i really don't like that at all really no um okay no no and here's why for a movie about dreams and dreams inside dreams whatever the dreams are fucking boring like yeah. this is the you, snow you level you on Goldeneye. Like you mentioned James Bond. Yeah, you mentioned James Bond and Mission Impossible. This is this is a this is like a early second act scene from a bad James Bond movie. Oh, or a good James this, Bond. Movie. I was gonna say still, I disagree. It's it's this. <laughs> um, I like a good Bond. I like no, the snow but, chase sequence. But to to Josh, okay, that's fine. But still, predicated under this is a dream inside a dream inside a dream. Uh, th- there should be some really trippy stuff going on here, like. I'm going to bring up David Lynch for the second time in two podcasts. You want to see some dream logic stuff? Like watch a David Lynch movie. And this is going, I'm going. Robert Blake should be in this third dream level for sure. Yes, calling himself at Bill Pullman's home. That's what we (laughs) need in this movie. And really your dream is like the J, like Goldeneye, the video game. Like, come on, man. Well, okay. Even, even setting aside the fact that it's kind of lame. I also mean, it's kind of like confusing and for a movie that gets praised for its set pieces and for its action sequences and for its editing, it's like incoherent at this point in the movie because everyone's wearing like goggles and hats and like there was multiple chases happening, but I don't know who's chasing who or why at one point after like a chasing happens, um, Killian Murphy Fisher says to Sato, couldn't we, couldn't somebody have dreamed up a beach? And like, that's the first time I realized Fisher was even in this chase sequence. Mm. I didn't know he was a part of this. So again, everything is robbed of stakes because I don't know who's where, who's doing what, who's chasing who and why. And I don't know who's trying to get where. Well, yeah, because ultimately I learned that it's all you know, they, they literally undermine. Because doesn't Sato and Fisher are climbing a mountain, and then oh no, we don't have time for I that. I think they, I don't actually know. They jump down and fall down the mountain. There's an avalanche suddenly, and they're fine. And then Cobb tells Ariadna to like put a shortcut in, and <laughs> I don't know if she actually does or if that actually pays off. If they actually use the shortcut, I don't really know. But there's like a very pointed moment where he says, "Do it now." I'm like, I don't know, did she? Well, yeah, it, cr- it creates a question. Why, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this a few minutes ago? Because why were they? Cl- why were they f- climbing up the face of a fucking mountain? Yeah. yeah. Well, why? because she failed. She failed the test twice. <laughs> but this goes to a larger Christopher Nolan thing in that I think this isn't the only movie where like the second act climax is the best part of the movie, and then mm. the third act kind of pales in comparison. Uh, it happens here. It certainly happens in the Dark Knight. In the Dark Knight, the like, the thing where he can like see multiple levels of the building in that final fight where the doctors are the hostages and the hostages are the doctors. That sequence is a lot lamer than the plot to capture the Joker, where um, and then the Rachel uh, Dent explosion thing, where and the truck flips Rachel. over and all that stuff, and the interrogation room with the Joker, like. Th- that movie peaks an hour and a half in, and then the last hour is like not as good as the initial peak. This movie's the same way. Mm, um, I disagree with so? you on Dark Knight. I, that okay. the stuff you described is awesome, but we get the 
twisting upside down shot of the Joker. We get that business on like that prisoner's dilemma yeah, on the two on the, sh- between the, boats, the ferry, and which the boat, is really yeah. cool. And then how else would Christopher Nolan get in his commentary about Bush's surveillance program? If not Morgan Freeman going, this is too much power <laughs> for one man. That's fair. I'm not saying it sucks. I'm just saying that it's not as good as the, as the second act climax. That's fair. That's fair. A little earlier. Yeah. And um, is Dunkirk the same way? I can't remember. I can't remember how Dunkirk ends now. I don't know. Well, speaking ends. of Dunkirk, though, like the, you can see proto time dilation in this, which he then puts in Interstellar and Dunkirk. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's 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 another thing. Is like I think that I've not seen Insomnia, but is Insomnia the only movie where there's not any I, kind of? I think it's pretty straightforward. Yes, Batman the... begin. No, actually, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises don't have those. Are straightforward linear stories. I think. Okay. But every other movie he has either has like time moving backwards or multiple timelines or time dilation or compression like this one, um, which I don't like. In, I don't begrudge that. It, it's just like a Nolan thing, just an observation. But this is maybe like the er of that. But but the coolest the version of it is in Oppenheimer where you've got the – well, you have three, right? Yeah. You have yeah. you have the weird deposition in story. the closet. You have yes. the Robert Downey Jr. deposition, and then you have Hearing, the, f- yes. the flashback, the kind of forward progression of history. God, but Oppenheimer all... fucking rules, man. Yes. That, that movie fucking rules. It's so, it's so good. good. <laughs> and I, I was so like, am I going to like a Christopher Nolan movie? And I I, 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 I owned loving it. Um, but all of the cuts in there are, are justified by what do these people need to know at the moment that they need to know it. And the editing in that, I'm sorry, but this Lee Smith editing in Inception is too confusing. The goodness of the editing comes from the screenplay structure, whereas in Oppenheimer, the beauty of the editing comes from he's working with Jennifer Lame. Yeah, that's kind of the point I was making is that I feel like the editing in this actually isn't very good. And it's praised a lot, and the action scenes are praised a lot. And like some of the action sequences are good. We already mentioned the hallway scene. Some of them aren't as good. And like the scene that I already alluded to, where like Eames has the one joke about dreaming bigger and like the big gun. That is preceded by a very brief scene where Joseph Gordon-Levitt exchanges gunfire with an unseen projection. It's like badly edited. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. gunfight. It's only like thirty seconds long, but like it's lame. It's and there's and... there's parts in the Dark Knight when the Joker's in the like eighteen wheeler where the the one eighty axis is axis is like an afterthought. I don't know who's driving where and in what direction. It's a it's a total mess. And this movie, so, that mess is covered up in movies like this because of the, the amount of editing required and because of the amount of action. So mm-hmm. I can see where people get confused and everyone's impressed by it, got an Oscar nomination right. But it's because there's just a lot of editing. It doesn't, and it's covering up, I think, the, the messiness. It's not well edited, you're right, because there's just too much um, I'm reaching the end of my notes, so I just have like one or two random things, and then I want to talk about the ending, if that's okay, because the ending's kind of an important part of the legacy of this movie, I think. But uh, just random thoughts. Pete Postlewaite. Yeah. Pete Postlewaite shows up. I do. We all love Pete Postlewaite, don't yeah, we? I do love him in this. He plays Fisher's dad, to those who don't know who Pete Postlewaite is. Yeah, and to that, I mean, I complained about the actors in this who I don't particularly care for, but love Pete Postlewaite. Uh, good use of Tom Berenger, yes. which Great you can't Tom say Berenger. for a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, anytime Michael Caine shows up, I'm always glad to see Michael Caine. 
even if it's like for three minutes. I was going to say, always he's, glad to see him. He's not in uh, much of this movie. He's Ken Watanabe. I think is he's yeah. great, really good in this. Um, and man, I mean, I, I've caught up to the train or whatever, but Killian Murphy, uh, I really like him in this. And you just every time I see him now, especially after having seen Oppenheimer, which again, he's he's great in stuff before Oppenheimer. If you haven't seen The Wind That Shakes the Barley add to Q. If you haven't seen Breakfast on Pluto, add to Q. But I've never heard of either of these movies. Oh, dude. It's it's Irish films he made. Uh way way back when. And he's just Is he he's forget with Inception? He's so good. When Inception yeah. comes around, it's not like he's an up and comer or he's like a recent like he 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 really landed big in what two thousand when was when was twenty eight days later? Two thousand three, two thousand four? Uh two thousand two, two thousand three. Somewhere there. Um, he's in Danny Red he, Eye. He, I was gonna say Red Ooh. Eye is a so it, it maybe it, it's not the greatest of thrillers, but it has it's no. Wes business. Craven, yeah, on an airplane. It's great. It's a, it, I don't love the movie, but it is much better than I think it had any business being, in large part because he's so effective as the villain in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he's in Sunshine, another Danny Boyle movie, which he leads. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's done. This is what the third we said movie. I think he's in with. For Nolan, yeah, right. He's done I the think so. Batman second. Yeah, he's done. Uh, he's in both. Batmans, yeah, so yeah. he's yeah, exactly. He's in both Batman. So this is the third. He is excellent in Batman Begins. Yeah. He is so yeah. good in Batman Begins. Yeah, I love him in that. He's so creepy, and has like really good line reads. I think I also think he's great in Dunkirk, even though he's yep. he's like six built in that and like six built in Batman Begins. And I agree, TJ. He's really good in this too. Mm-hmm. And I, I I always thought he had an Oppenheimer in him, and even so, I'm fucking blown away by how good he is in Oppenheimer mm-hmm. and he I hope he wins best actor we'll see um other random oh okay Pete Postlewaite he dies shortly after this comes out he, he dies in January tw- like early January 2011 um he had pancreatic cancer and uh he's in this and the town mm-hmm. and also in Clash of the Titans so he's in three big movies in 2010 as like his swan song and I like him um, in both this and the town he's so good in the town yeah He's he has more to do in the town than he does in this. Sure. He, he basically has like one scene in this. But he's, he's good in that. In he's got a, he's in a couple scenes, but he really carries. He, he he imbues a lot of emotion into the second scene he's in. That's and, like theoretically the emotional climax of the movie. Right. is a line that he has to deliver to Killian Murphy, and, and he nails it. Yeah. If not for Tom Hardy screaming from the door, I really like that scene. I think it's really lovely. Just it's annoying having Eames screaming in the background. Um, because Kelly Murphy, I think Pete Postlewaite really, they add something to the movie, something that I hadn't seen prior to that point in the film. Like, again, though, it's slightly undermined by everything, the noise in the background. And it's just kind of Tom Hardy being like, we gotta go. Come on. (laughs) Regardless, shout out Pete Postlewaite. Have you guys seen in the name of the father? No, I I need to though. Okay. I think that's his only Oscar nomination. Um, and it's a Jim Sheridan film from, I believe, 93 starring, Daniel Day Lewis, um, and it's based on a true story, and it's a it's a really excellent movie, and it's uh, prime Daniel Day Lewis. Emma Thompson is the lawyer in that, um, but there's some wonderful scenes in jail between Pete Postlewaite and Daniel Day Lewis, and uh, he's excellent. Uh, my first exposure to him was Jurassic Park: The Lost World. Same. <laughs> it was that for me, and then The Usual Suspects. Mm. Another random thing, just in my notes. Uh, the blonde woman at the bar yeah. when they go, I think, this second level down in the dreamscape. That is a, an actress named Tallulah Riley. Yeah. 
And uh, I learned that she was married to Elon Musk. That's right. Twice. Did we, did, oh. Twice? Twice. Oh. They got married. Oh they got divorced. They got remarried and apparently then divorced because they're not, I don't think they're married now. She tried to hit You're it right. They, they did. Yeah. They got married in 2010, then again in 2013. Wow. I missed that. Um, and also during, this is just straight from a Wikipedia page, during Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, text exchanges between Musk and Riley were released where she pleaded with him to buy the social media site asking, quote, please do something to fight wokeism. I will do anything to help XX. Ooh. And then there's <laughs> what where X dork. came from. What a <laughs> dork. That's dork shit. Uh, do you know who she's engaged to now? Um, Jeff Bezos. She's in- <laughs> No, she's engaged to uh, Travis Kelsey. The little drummer kid in Love Actually. Oh, um... Who also singer. plays Jojen Reed in Game of Thrones, and also that kid with a mustache in Queen's Gambit. Yes, singer. Right? Thomas Brody Sangster. Oh, Sangster. interesting. Yeah. yeah, he's like 40, kid, but looks like he's 12. Yeah. <laughs> he's our age. Yeah, he's. I think he's 34, and he will never not look like 14. Uh, he was good in Queen's Gambit. having a mustache. Yeah. Yeah, in the Queen's Gambit, he had a mustache, like a duster. <laughs> like I, a I've, I coach chess, and I've met that person before. Like, uh-huh. yeah. I believe you. Yes, yeah. I believe you. So that's Tallulah. Riley. I have not met any Elizabeth Harmons. If there's any Elizabeth Harmons out there, I can get you into my school. So despite all it right. being all boys. I was just about to say. That's, uh, <laughs> we'll figure it out. We promise. will figure it out. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the ending, but if you guys have other random assortment of notes to go through, please bring them up now. Yeah. Teach so uh, <laughs> I thought you'd never ask Ken. I mean, Josh, you're just a projection in my memory. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so I put this in my essay about Oppenheimer, and I think this really um, speaks to <laughs> Inception. Our good friend Charlie Kaufman wrote a novel called Ant Kind. Um, and in that, now this is not Kaufman's words. as Kaufman's words put through a rather pedantic film critic. But he says this, and I quote, Starbucks is the smart coffee for dumb people. It's the Christopher Nolan of coffee. Um, and when I, when I read that quote, I just think of Inception. Um, but well, what did I what did I say about Goodwill Hunting when we had that episode? I called s- that a smart move for dumb people. Yeah. Are you saying Inception is a smart move for dumb people? I I think it's a dumb movie that that people who I, I honestly I think it's a dumb movie that people who are a little bit above like the general populace would really, really latch on to. I don't think, and I'm being very insulting right now. I don't think serious film people take this very seriously, but I think like if there's like a medium rare <laughs> film person, I think this really, really hits the medium rare film person. Does that make sense? Are you making a distinction between serious film people and film bros? Because it sounds like you might be doing that. Yeah, I'm trying to because I don't want to be called okay. a film bro. Well, this is very popular among film bros. Okay, that that tracks. Well, depends on depends on who you're talking, who you're talking to, I guess. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about the names. Are there worse named characters in the history of cinema than Dom Cobb, which is recycled from Following, Mall, whatever the fuck that means? <laughs> yeah, it's not sure. It's bad in Latin. <laughs> oh, get it? She's bad. It's yeah. bad. Yeah, and then. Uh, Ariadne, I know it was like the Minotaur and drew the little labyrinth and all of that stuff, whatever. But yeah, because, you know, I, I've tracked this with all the Ariadnes I know to see if they were named for the Greek goddess as well and uh, came back zero out of zero. Yeah, I, 
I like the name Ariadne, but it's only literally I only know of it in one other one other circumstance outside of Greek myth. You and like that name for what? Like your fish? Like what? I'm, I I I think the name's interesting, and I'm saying the only place I've ever I've ever heard it outside of Greek Greek mythology is in um, Agatha Christie books because Ariadne mm. Oliver is a stand-in mm. for Agatha Christie in her own books. She comes in and usually snipes at Hercule Poirot. That's the only other time I'm familiar with this name being used in pop culture. Which, which let's just point out, you also said Hercule Poirot, which Poirot. nobody else has named. So yeah, well, he's Belgian. Um, but again, it's an odd, it's an odd choice. I get why they're doing it though. It's it's a reach because you're like, hey, for all you people out there who know a lot about Greek mythology. Her name's Ariadne. Well, but it's it's clearly a flex of like, I know about Greek mythology. Hmm. We'll see when you get it. I'm going to spoil uh, briefly the letterbox section. The number one highest rated review on letterbox says the following, quote, Christopher Nolan spent years writing this movie's complex plot and really named the main character Dom Cobb. <laughs> yeah. Like, it sounds like a salad that you would get fancy dressing on. Like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> I Here's what he's doing. Dom Here's what he's Cobb. doing. The characters. Dom Robert, Ames, Arthur, Maul, Sato, dreams. What do you mean they're dreams? D R E A M S. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you are waving your arms wildly in this non-visual medium to indicate. Ooh, that's basically. just so cool. This is next level shit, Josh. Although I, what else do you have in your notes? TJ? No, that's it. <laughs> A lot of tallies for Ariadne's questions. That's all. Ken, you got anything else before we talk about the ending? Uh, not, not particular. I'm curious. Uh, we talked a little bit about we talked about Mal as a character. Um, I'm curious as a non-character. How do we feel about Marion Cotillard's performance here? Because I'm struck, <laughs> struck watching this movie and realizing as we're watching it, other than Michael Caine, who's in a very little of it, um, although plays her father, right? They're the only Oscar winners in the movie. So when you're watching this movie, she's coming with some credibility behind her. And I do appreciate the fact that I think within the dreamscape, she she does a pretty decent job of, of balancing menacing with desperation at times. But I'm not sure I'm I'm really invested enough in her character. And I, I think part of that might be the story. I'm just curious where we fall on Marion and I Mal. think that I think she is, as I said, she's a non-character a vague antagonist with ill-defined rules of how she works. Cause she is like, there are rules associated with her. She is like yes. a projection of Cobb's grief, but can still like act independently somehow in like the dreamscape. So I don't, again, I don't really know what's going on with her. And so I don't think Marion Cotillard has much to play on or play off. She does fine, but she's kind of just like a vaguely drawn, um, unstable, emotional, villain i guess and she does well with that but i don't know i don't really know what to make of her character um i think she's great in the one scene that we called out where she's super diabolical with like her planning to frame him for murder kind of thing um i think she all to say i think she does well with what she's given but she's not given much is how i feel about main katiad she feels wasted to me in this and in dark knight rises yeah. where i'm kind of she like very wasted yeah. dark knight rises. like really you called in marion cotillard for this like Oof, okay. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely true of that of that film in particular. Yeah. Um, so, 
this movie ends with a spinning top, right? As and movies that, do. <laughs> that uh, is a, in, I guess, intended to be a semi ambiguous ending. The movie established early on that the top is uh, what Cobb uses to determine if he's dreaming or not. If the top, if he spins the top and it falls, that means he's not dreaming. If he spins the top and it goes on forever, that means he's dreaming. No, that's no. not the case. Okay. That's not his totem. That was her totem. Okay, don't don't fucking don't do this. Don't do this yet. We can yeah, do I'm this just, in a second. No, but... no, you just said that's what he uses. That's not his totem. Well, he does okay. use it. Though. When they explain what totems are, he does use it as a totem. Yeah. Like he does. That's he the uses ex- it in the real world. Okay. Okay. So, don't do that yet. We can we can talk about that when we get into the specifics of what, what this is. Uh audiences seem to really respond to this ending, which again is semi ambiguous. Um, the movie ends with them being successful in the heist, and uh, they incept Bobby Fisher, and uh, Sato gets what he wants, which is this guy, his ri- uh, business rival, to break up his father's company. And then, as promised, in return, Sato makes a phone call and gets Cobb's name cleared. I don't know how that happens, by the way, but it happens. So Cobb is cleared of the murder charges of his wife, gets to go home and see his kids. And he spins the top before he goes to see his kids and walks away from the spinning top to hug James and Philippa. And then the movie ends on the top as it starts to like maybe top a little bit, but then it cuts to black before anything happens. So is Cobb dreaming? Is this reality? Ooh. Um, and it's been much debated, I guess. And to TJ's point, one of the things people point out in this debate is like, is that even his totem? Is this, like, even an indicator of whether or not he's in reality? Um, I, I think that's, like, getting too into the details, I think, that that observation. Yes, that was Maul's t- totem, but, like, Maul's dead. So the whole idea, the explanation of a totem is, like, only you know how it feels and how it works. So, like, if the only other person knows how it feels and how it works is dead, then I think that also works for your totem. That could be your totem, too. I don't really know, though. Sounds um, like they're making up rules, Josh. Well, the, the, I'm, I'm engaging with the movie as the movie presents rules to me, right? But did Ariadne ask if you can transfer totems? I don't <laughs> think she did. No, but just when Levitt says, only I know the weight, specific weight of this mm. loaded dice. Therefore, only I can know if it's real. No one can fake it. Okay. Therefore, no one can, can no one can fake this for me. So if I know this, if I roll this dice and it goes away, I know it to go, then I know that it's real. Mm. I know that I'm in reality. No one can fake this for me. Um, so I guess theoretically the only person who could fake Dom's coat totem is Maul, but she's dead. So, um, so I don't buy into the, it wasn't his totem. Therefore it doesn't really matter thing. However, I also am of the opinion that this totem is a, is a misdirect, I guess. Like it's, um, let, let me say this. Uh, I feel like that was all over like Reddit and message boards and IMDb boards was like, is the totem going to fall? Is he, is he in reality? Like, is this a Blade Runner situation? Is he... Was he dreaming the whole time? That kind of thing. And it was like off disgust. And um, I remember being in college and uh, on Friday and Saturday nights, they would like show movies in one of the big lecture halls to try to encourage kids to not go to parties and get drunk. <laughs> They'd like, hey, go see a movie instead of, you know, <laughs> going to get drunk. And I would just do both. I would go see the movie and then I would go get drunk because, you know, because I was alive and it was the greatest time of my life. You must have been 21 or older if you were getting drunk. Um, no comment. And this movie played, uh, fall of junior year. So like fall of 2010. Um, and I went to go see it in a packed lecture hall 
Uh, it was like the most packed time I saw this lecture hall. And um, I remember when the movie cut to black at the ending after the top did not fall, uh, a kid, a row over from me in the lecture hall, leans forward, throws his hands in the air, and yells at the screen, fall, fall, because apparently he was very invested and really wanted the top to fall and really wanted Dom to be in reality. And so, like, that's, like, I say that as, like, a microcosm of, like, how a lot of people reacted to this. They felt very strongly about it and, like, debated it. Um, I'm sorry, this was a student at Notre Dame who reacted that way? It was a way? student at Notre Dame. And also, that's dork shit. Don't do yeah, that, dude. Like, be cool. Say. Like, be, be a little cool, please. Just, like, go talk about it later with your friends, but don't yell at the screen. That's dork shit. Um, T, uh, Ken, what do you think about the spinning top ending in general? Uh, one, I, I don't, really. Um, don't think about it. Um, I'm not sure I care either way. Uh, I'm intrigued, I guess, a little bit by the concept that he's he's not back in the real world, um, and I can see it. Everything we everything we see from him with Mal to suddenly having found Sato, I guess, and um, made it back, and he's on the airplane, everybody's looking at him, and then Nolan does Nolan and Wally Fister do this thing at the airport where there's kind of a dreamlike lighting to the the airport as he exits him waking up in the plane is also pretty dreamlike too like no one says anything no one says any dialogue like we don't we don't hear from any of our main characters ever again after he wakes up there um and so i i i can i can buy into that i can also i guess buy into it the other way i guess the idea that i have to make a decision doesn't really appeal to me i kind of i'm fine with letting it sit there and be a discussion point for those who want to have the discussion um for, for the record i Hey, Michael Caine, I think it pops up in all of our dreams. So if he is dreaming, it makes sense that 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 it flows the way it does. But um, I don't know if I care. I just at that point, I'm not sure I care. TJ, I have a similar answer of I don't really care, and the reason I don't really care is because Dom Cobb doesn't really care. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. Elaborate. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he walks away and he doesn't look to see whether it falls or not. So yeah, he spins the top then leaves it, and before it, he can figure see if it falls or not. Yeah, this is the answer to: Do we have free will? The illusion's nice. Why bother? Yeah, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, with with the totem topple in a dream. I, I don't know, because it begins to waver, you know, whatever. And he sees the faces. He hadn't seen the faces before. You could sit here and do this all day. But the point is, uh, I don't know why we get so hung up on it if he's not hung up on it. Yeah, that's, I think, kind of like the the secret key to this ending is that the, the, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Because um, there's a scene, like, a little, little before halfway where uh, we meet the chemist and he's talking about the sedative that he uses and they go down to the basement and we see like 12 people who are all dreaming, sharing the same dream. And he says they go there every day to dream and they dream for like three or four hours at a time, which is 40 hours in dream time. And they go there every day. So basically like they're living in this dream 40 hours at a time, then come out to like go home and then come back the next day and live another 40 hours. Like as the creepy guy who is like the, you know, whatever the Sherpa down there, he says, the dream has become the reality. Now, who are you to say any different son? 
which is like setting up the ending. Mm-hmm. Whether or not Cobb's in reality or not, he's choosing to live in a world where he's with his kids. And whether or not that's real or not to, relative to us, it's real to him. He's choose, he's choosing that reality over any other. That's why he spins the top and then doesn't care if it falls because he goes to be with his kids. That's his yeah, choice. He's choosing to live in that reality. I mean, it's somewhat disingenuous, though. I get where if you care about the character, you don't want him to be an asshole. So you hope that he's choosing his actual kids and not just a dream state. But Well, the question is, does he know? Yeah, that part I don't care about. <laughs> I get why people. I can get why people though. You want him to be in. If you want, if you care about the character, you want him to actually be in reality because he cares. At least we've mm. been we've been left with the impression this whole time he just wants to get back to his kids. The reason he didn't want her to jump not only because he loved her. Hey, the reason you shouldn't jump is because of our kids. We're in reality now. We've you know we have to be there for mm. James and Philippa. And it is strange that he he doesn't seem to care. Or maybe he knows. Like, he's just spinning the top despite the fact that he's convinced. He knows. He's in the real world. Well, again, while I maintain that, like, the movie is telling us that it doesn't matter because he walks... The character is telling us it doesn't matter because right. he walks away. The movie's kind of, like, focusing the top, I think, is like a misdirect. But it, I guess just to, like, give my two cents, even though I just said it doesn't matter. Um, we see him spin the top after the opening set piece when he's, like before he's recruited by Sato. So we see him spin the top, and it falls. Great. We see him spin the top a second time, and it falls when Arthur is explained to Ariadne what totems are. And so we see it fall a second time. So presumably, given the rules of the movie, he's still in reality at that point. We see the scene that I just mentioned, where they go see the chemist, and the chemist is explaining the sedation. There's like 12 people in the basement dreaming all at the same time. And the guy says, the dream has become their reality now. Cobb goes under at that point, and then comes out of that, spins the thing, but like is interrupted before it falls or not. It's like we don't see the top fall for the rest of the movie. So like theoretically, if he actually is in a dream at the end of the movie, it's because he's still under sedation at that guy's chemist basement, potentially. Mm. So that's like that's the binary if he's in reality or if he's not in reality. If he's not in reality, that's where he is. And I think that's true. I think that's the case. Just because like he sees like the vision he sees of his kids when he goes to see them at the end of the movie is completely unchanged from the last time he saw yeah. them when he had to like leave as a fugitive of justice. They don't have their, and so like the fact they don't have a wardrobe, they just have one item. They don't have a wardrobe, and also they haven't aged at all. And he's presumably been away for like months, yeah. if not more than that. And like his son James is like two, so he would have like aged a decent amount in the time that he'd been gone, and he hadn't aged. So my take is that I don't know. It seems pretty clear to me that he's not in reality, but also who gives a shit like. That's the reality he's choosing. So that's that's where I'm at in the ending. Can I throw something in? Not about the ending. This is a an original concept, right? This movie. Let me read you this. The Beagle Boys were the default nemeses of Scrooge McDuck, the wealthy uncle of Donald Duck, who for a time had his own adventure-themed cartoon series called DuckTales. He had also, and still has his own comic book, and ended a few decades ago, the Beagle Boys hatched a plot to steal his money. By invading his dreams and stealing his secrets. DuckTales did this before Inception. And maybe cool. better. Cool, man. <laughs> is, that, is that it? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> there is a DuckTales-ception of Inception. Um, if you look at the actual pictures of the comic, which I can't show you now, um, the Dream Machine looks a lot like uh dream machine in this which you know goes unexplained also how the dream machine works but uh, yeah that's yeah. what I was, that's another thing is like again it's so silly 
oh, you guys all hook up to the same IV, then suddenly, like, I can exist as a entity with free will inside your mind, inside your dream. How does that work exactly? Again, I, I'm, I'm being too nitpicky at that point. That's, like, you kind of just need to accept the premise of the movie and, like, not pull it apart. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to watch the movie. But, like, even beyond that, again, pulling any thread doesn't really... Yeah, theoretically, but, but to go back to my sense. point, you, you do that because they spend 40 minutes... They invite you all to do these that. details yeah. out. They, if you they, cut they invite these questions. A hundred minutes long. You just kind of go, uh, okay, you know. <laughs> um, anything else to say about Inception before I get to like box office, Oscars, and Letterboxd? No, not really. No. Uh, as I said, it was made for 160 million dollars, which is great. I love that. I love they gave him that money. And hey, you make a Dark Knight, you get 160 million dollars to make your weird dream movie. So, who among us? Uh, it opened to 63. Which is a very healthy opening in July. Uh, nothing else opened that weekend. Like they cleared out for this movie, basically. Hmm. Um, the only other op- movie opening that weekend was The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> TJ Cage. Did you go see Nicholas Cage? I did not. I still haven't seen The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh, my mind. Yeah. I guess what I'm doing later tonight. <laughs> Watching Inception again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Duh. I got to see if that top falters or not. <laughs> Uh, it made 63 opening weekend on its way to 293 domestic, 828 worldwide, which can is a sizable, sizable hit. Um, Letterboxd reviews. Um, this is popular on Letterboxd, but less than I thought. It's not as popular as I thought. It's not in the Letterboxd Top 250, which I kind of expected it to be. I am, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm quite sure it's in the IMDb Top 250, because those are two different demographics, Letterboxd and IMDb. Uh, I already read the top review. It's making fun of the name Dom Cobb. <laughs> um, most of the reviews are like that, where it's like jokey, but I think they're funny, so I'll read them to you. Uh, second highest review. Fellas, is it gay to go inside your bro's dreams? Hard to say. Um, finally watched Inception the way Chris Nolan intended for it to be seen. Only the first 10 minutes and on the big screen in Fortnite. That's funny. Um, Dom Cobb seems like he's never told a joke in his life and has zero friends. No. I mean, Arthur kind of seems like his friend, but yeah, maybe not. Um, <laughs> how is Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Is he okay? Where is he? Is he being taken care of? Is he safe? Will he ever work again? What is he doing? Is his career over? Oh, how I wish my husband would, <laughs> would return from war. <laughs> he kind of has gone away. Yeah. He's in a film yeah. that just uh, came out this year, right? Flora and Son. I haven't seen it yet, but he is in a movie this year. Well, he was in a couple of Chris Nolan movies. Then he made Don John. And then he kind of went away for a while. Um, he, here's a review that's actually like an actual like assessment of the movie. Inception at its most basic is two things. It's a heist film dressed in science fiction conventions. And it is a study of a man trying to free himself from a near suffocating past. Inception at its most complex is a cerebral pop masterpiece. It is an enthralling combination of thought-provoking layered storytelling and sumptuous aesthetics enhanced by near flawless editing, sound design, effects, and musical score. Driven by a pitch-perfect cast and the confident directorial hand of Christopher Nolan, Inception is a brilliant and unrivaled piece of filmmaking. I agree with, like, maybe 30% of that and disagree with, like, 70% of that, but at least, you know, that's a take. It feels a pretty common take. (laughs) That's a take. Um... That's kind of it for Letterboxd. You can go look for yourself. There's not, like, much beyond what I read there. Um, at the Oscars, this is nominated for Best Picture and Lost to The King's Speech. It's nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Lost to The King's Speech. It's nominated for Best Art Direction and Lost to Alice in Wonderland. No. Yeah. It's, not, 
It was nominated for Best Cinematography and won for Wally Pfister. It was nominated for Best Score and lost to The Social Network. And it was nominated for Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. And it won all three of those. So it won four Oscars total. I'm, o- I'm okay um, with three of those wins. Which well, one are you not it. okay with, Ken? <laughs> Guess. Hold on. Let's, let's talk. Let's, hold on. Let's take these one at a time. Um, first of all, no director nomination. For Christopher no, Nolan. in fact, wasn't the his spot was taken or by his spot he was nominated for the the DGA I believe, and the Cohen brothers got the Oscar nomination that they and where they didn't get a DGA for True Grit. I did not check the DGAs, but the five director nominations were Tom Hooper for the King's Speech, uh, David Fincher for the Social Network, David Russell for the Fighter, Darren Aronofsky for the Black Swan, and the Coen Brothers for. Um, yeah, and the, the only one who doesn't really deserve to be there is Tom Hooper. And yet, who won? <laughs> I mean, he's fifth of five for me. Um, I'm kind of surprised to see David Russell there over Christopher Nolan. Um, but I guess there's like a lot of acting in that, and people kind of associate performances with directing. So uh, It, it is know. weird, though. This is a film that you'd think... This screams most directing, so usually there's a nomination for a film like this. If it gets a best... Yeah, this is actually... I feel like this is the kind of movie that like is more likely to get a best director nomination than best picture nomination nowadays. They kind of dooned him. Yeah, they did kind of dune him. Yeah. Um, I think Christian Nolan. Okay, we're recording this in November. I think Christian Nolan's winning best director at the Oscars in three months. What do you think? I think it's I, s- I still think Greta Gerwig's winning. I think she's, I'd go. Oh, I think I'd go. Not. I'd go Nolan no, over not. Gerwig, but I. She might not even that... be nominated. Gerwig and Barbie going all the way. I don't think it's so. happening. I think Nolan's got a better no, it's, shot. It's absolutely not. Um, I don't think I don't I don't think you can sleep on Scorsese though. I think there's some conversation there. In the this this lost best original screenplay to the King's Speech. That's now. <sighs> we all have our issues with the writing in this movie, but again, I kind of what I, what I my tepid defense is like the macro writing. I think is awesome. Like the big picture, bird's eye view concept here and like the originality here and like yeah once you kind of get in the gritty it kind of sucks <laughs> from like a dialogue standpoint and also like the details of the world standpoint but like to the king's speech of all things yeah but, losing best original screenplay to the king's speech yeah but you've also got another year and the kids are all right in that category right i'd take either one of those over both king's speech and inception was another year nominated it was for screenplay oh, there's your clear winner yeah yeah it also loses best art direction to Alice in Wonderland. And like I'm thinking about the art direction might be like the strongest part of this movie. Like fair, Paris folding over on itself is such an iconic fucking image. And the hallway scene is, the, is such iconic is that, fucking imagery. Is that visual effects though? That's what won yeah, that's it what, did win best visual effects and, and the it, Paris yeah. Paris folding over on itself, it won best visual effects, that's true. Um, Alice in Wonderland is, is most art direction. <laughs> I mean Alice in Wonderland yes. is art directed to the to its Set designed death. Um, I'll tell you what. Maybe maybe this lost the Oscar because that shitty Snow Fortress sequence in the last third. <laughs> Probably maybe that's why. Yeah, because the art direction there sucks. Yeah, lazy. Um, okay, in this one cinematography for Wally Pfister, and this was the fourth consecutive Christopher Nolan movie for which Wally Pfister was nominated for best cinematography. He was nominated for Batman Begins. He was nominated for The Prestige. He was nominated for The Dark Knight. And then nominated for this. He did not win any of those first three and then won this. That's... I think this is the of those four, this is my least favorite cinematography yeah. of those four movies. And so like the fact that he won for this kind of sucks in my mind. I mean it's great that Wally Fisher has an Oscar. But wrong movie and you know, give it to him for the prestige. Like 
Well, granted, that the Prestige was the same year as Children of Men, but I don't think that won Best Cinematography either. I think Pan's Labyrinth won um, off the top of my also, head. Also, with due respect but, uh, for Wally Pfister, by this point, if you're like, there's the there's the suggestion at all. If there's a suggestion at all that oh, he's he's owed, we didn't give it to him for those other ones. He beats Roger Deakins here. He does. Yeah. And and Social Network had a brilliant had brilliant cinematography from yes, it did. Um, uh, Jeff Cronenweth. Cronenweth, thank you. Cronenweth, yeah. I would take either one of those, or, True Grit or Social Network. I mean, I think Social Network is the clear winner. Or we talked about... But I would also take True Grit. Matthew Liberty, I think, does a really good job with Black Swan. Yeah, he's great. So, yeah, that's, that's a really well-shot movie. This is this is worse than all three of those, I think. <laughs> like, easily. What was the fifth so, nominee in that category? Do we do it? Stand by, and I can tell you. Probably. It was probably the King's Speech, wasn't it? No. I think it probably was the King's Speech. No, 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 no. Hold on. I have it in front of me. You want to take a stab at it, uh, TJ? Can you give me a small hint? Uh, Ken just said it. It was the King's Speech. <laughs> oh, shit. Really? <laughs> yes. Okay. Inception, Black Swan, the King's Speech, Social Network, and True Grit. Wow. Which, again, Inception or the King's Speech is the is the fifth out of five, but like, I might even take the King's Speech over this, honestly. Call me crazy. That's, like, that's this might be crazy. <laughs> this might be fifth of five in my mind for best cinematography of the year. Do you think it's a little bit of a makeup Oscar for not The Dark Knight? Probably. Did the so did Slumdog Millionaire win cinematography? It did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think The Dark Knight should have beaten. What happened to Wally Fister? By the first. way, he at some point he stopped photographing. He made films. a he directed he directed a movie called Transcendence. Transcendence, Transcendence starring Johnny yeah. Depp, Jonathan Depp. But, no one fucking liked it. Yeah, but, I don't believe. But the idea was, I thought I remember Wally Fister had decided he was going to move into directing. He made Transcendence. What happened after that? Where's Wally Fister? You think at the least he might have gone back to photographing? But I Hollywood said, you know what, Wally, we're good. <laughs> Nolan <laughs> said, nice to meet you. This is my friend Hoyta Van Hoytema. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. dude, Hoyt Van Hoytema ate Wally Fister's fucking lunch because <laughs> that guy, that guy, <laughs> put his arm around Chris Nolan and said, "We don't need you anymore, Wally. We're good here." Speaking of which, Hoyta Van Hoytema shot the fighter. That's right. Did he? he did. Yeah, yeah I saw Bullshit. the credits. Seriously? I was like, "What? You're oh usually so good, and this movie doesn't look that and, great." And then what? they bring in the fucking HBO film crew who shot the boxing scenes yeah. to like light the boxing scenes. Like, yeah. what are you doing? You got Hoyt Van Hoytman in your back pocket. No, they didn't. What are we know. doing here? They didn't know what they had there. Um, dude, uh, first of all, Hoyt Van Hoytman shot Oppenheimer, and he very well might win an Oscar this year for that. Uh, he shot Nope a couple yes, of years he did. ago. Yeah. Holy Beautiful. shit, dude! Yeah. Oh my god. Um, he shot. Did he shoot the master? No, no, he didn't shoot the master. No, no, but he shot um, something that I'm not thinking of right now. But uh, he's awesome. He's one mm-hmm. of the best doing it right now. And Wally Fister is sad at home, not shooting Christopher Nolan movies anymore. Um, let's see. Uh, Wally Fister shot Moneyball. That's, That's cool. The, is that the last thing he did? Is this he also shot The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, his yeah. last three movie or er, Inception, Moneyball, Dark Knight Rises, and a movie called Marley that I've never heard of. And other than that, though, he made Transcendence as a director, and he hasn't done shit since then, yeah. He made a couple episodes of um, The Tick for Amazon. Oh. And a few episodes of Flake for go. Netflix. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, that was in 2016, though. He hasn't he hasn't worked since 2016, apparently. Yeah. So that's Wally Fister. Where are you, Wally? Sitting at home. Stabbing a picture of an effigy of Hoyt Van Hoytma over and over again. Yep. Trying to get his life yeah, back. Yeah, but it's a really well-photographed picture of... <laughs> Uh, it was a it was a it was a selfie. 
what else? I'm do we done. Have? I'm I'm perfectly fine with the wins in editing, mixed sound editing, sound mixing, and effects. This is a Chris uh, Corbold led visual effects team. Cool. That Who's that? Chris Corbold does. I mean, he's done a bunch of the the Bond movies. He's one of the go-to guys nowadays if you want your big budget films. He did the Star Wars. I, I don't know if he did all of them. He did Force Awakens, and I think he worked with Ryan Johnson, so maybe Last Jedi. He's a really reliable like visual effects artist if you want your visual effects to look realistic as opposed to green screen CGI heavy. Anything else we want to say about Inception or about the Oscars or Letterboxd or Christopher Nolan or Dom Cobb or Ariadna? Or Michael Caine? Anything? Nope. I'm mum's the word over here. All right. Uh, I guess in closing, I think this is pretty good. I've said some not nice things here. I think it's pretty good, though. In most days, I like this movie. And again, as I said earlier, what I say and what I think about this movie kind of depends on who I'm talking about it with. <laughs> if I'm talking to fanboys, I will be more critical. If I'm talking to you guys who are haters, I might be more defensive of it. But, like, it's pretty good. I like this. I think it's a good movie. I loathe this picture. <laughs> okay, I know you do, TJ. And I think Ken's not a huge fan. Not either. a big I fan. I don't loathe it, but this isn't Titanic. I'm glad it's here. How about that? I'm glad it was not for Best Picture. Even though I think it's like maybe not in the top half of twenty, the, the top 10 here. And as you'll find out in a few weeks' time, I can name like a dozen movies that were more deserving. TJ, you said off mic that this is among your least favorite movies we've watched. Do you want to give that power ranking again on mic? At number one, Wilson. <laughs> Probably at number two, Inception. Number three, worst, Goodwill Hunting. At number four, I had a farm in Africa. Out of Africa. I can't believe you like Out of Africa more than Inception and Goodwill Hunting. That's an insane, insane thing to say. No, nope, I, I stand by that. Yeah. Robert, so that's Inception. Uh, if we didn't. If we didn't cover something you want us to cover, then direct all your tweets at Ken Dusold. Yes, by all means. Um, go ahead. He's not on Twitter. So if you tweet at Ken Dusold, it'll either go nowhere or to a nice gentleman who doesn't know what's coming to him. Um, again, I kind of alluded to this at the end of the last episode. This is a very talked about movie, a well-tried territory. We're not going to cover everything. We're just going to, you know, whatever. So if we didn't cover something, I don't know. Who cares? Uh, next week. Get a life, children. <laughs> get a life, indeed. Next week, we're moving on to the one, two, three, four, fifth movie, alphabetically. Yeah, so then we'll be done, right? Of the Best Picture nominees? Uh, no, there's ten. Uh, next week, we're watching a movie that I actually have not seen. Oh, wow. Oh. As of November 2023, I have not seen this movie. It's the only movie of these nominees that I did not watch before the Oscars. And that is, um, we're going to check it on the kids. That's what we're going to do. We're going to see. They're all right. I mean, I'm curious how they're doing. They're, they're all right. They're all right. Yeah, they had a, okay. they had a nasty kids are all right with their left hands, but they're they're all right. <laughs> right hands, right? Oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> Subtitle: yeah. Lesbians. They're just like us. Yep. What? <laughs> that's that's that, I, that's really what the movie is. Lesbians. Wow. They're just oh, like God. us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I forgot that there's lesbians in this movie. I like forgot for a second what the movie's about. I mean, let, um, let's be honest here. That's what it was really sold on. <laughs> and how how nice and amiable, um, what's his name? Mark Ruffalo is. That's also what the movie's sold on. And just Annette Bedding being a queen. Yes. Mm-hmm. As anyway. Yes, this would be a good double feature this next week if you if you haven't watched it, you could watch Kids Are Kids Are All Right and I guess Nyad, right? 
Mm. Another another is she, film is with she a, not, is she Nyad? Is she the titular she Nyad? Is. <laughs> what is a Nyad? <laughs> Please it's a person. Don't, don't ask her. She'll explain it. <laughs> um so yeah, come back next week for the kids are alright. I hope you enjoyed Inception. If you really love Inception and hated this, that's fine too. That's okay. Different strokes, different folks. If you hate Inception and liked this, also great. If you hate Inception and hated this, great. If you love Inception and loved this, that's probably the best case scenario. But uh Tune in again next week for The Kids Are All Right, and thanks for listening. Bye. Your condescension, as always, is appreciated, Arthur. Thank you.